stop this broadcast for an incoming transmission from the library. It appears that Blue Stocking has been able to make contact and the steampunk dollhouse will begin transmitting momentarily. Stay tuned for more news from these intrepid defenders of all our literary freedoms. Freedom Fighters, and welcome to the Steampunk Dollhouse. I am Blue Stocking. I'll be your host and librarian for the next little while. If you are a returning listener, I thank you for continuing to listen. If you're new to this, welcome to the Dollhouse. Um, I hope you'll enjoy this, our very first actual, true, full-length episode. Uh, it seems like we've had a not-too-bad response to the show so far. Uh, we've, I mean, we've only had two episodes up, and they're mostly filler, but I still really appreciate all the support that I've been given from so many different factions and communities it's it's really been uplifting uh, it's definitely been a learning experience and i still have a whole lot to learn but i'm really glad that i'm doing it uh, the reception so far has actually been rather overwhelming so i am just a little concerned that all this might be somewhat anticlimactic but we'll see uh, one note that i wanted to toss out there before we begin in the intro episode i mentioned world war one and the legend of how it all began with a sandwich uh, now, as I said at the time, that's really reductive and it's not super accurate. But if you want to know more about that story and the real beginnings of World War One, uh, then go listen to uh, one of the recent audio episodes of the Stuff They Don't Want You to Know podcast. Uh, it's titled What Was the Black Hand? It's a really great episode from a really great show and it will explain the whole stew of bad things that eventually led to that fateful sandwich. Uh, one more thing that I wanted to add. And um, it's this. Uh, this podcast and these discussions are part of a process for me. Um, I love steampunk literature and everything that I think it can do. But I also am well aware of the problems that are inherent to a genre that is so closely tied to subjects like colonialism, imperialism, slavery, uh, misogyny. And steampunk does have a very close connection to those subjects. Uh, there's no way that it can't. And anyone who gets upset by that or wants to deny or downplay those aspects will probably not want to continue listening. Now, I know I touched on this in the intro episode, but I want to be absolutely clear so that there are no misunderstandings. Steampunk is amazing, and it has much potential, uh, but like many things, it has issues. And while some will choose to ignore those issues... I think that does a disservice to all the steampunk engineers who aren't white and male, uh, which, by the way, is a much larger percentage than you might think. Now, having said all that, please also know that I do not mean to suggest through any of this that I am an expert in any particular field, uh, but my undergrad degree was focused on concentrations in English, history, and women's studies. Uh, the majority of my history courses were focused on America from late 18th century through World War One, My English classes were largely focused on uh, world and global literature and women's literature. And my women's classes, well, it turns out my mom was right, and they 
mostly just turned me into a screaming feminist. But all of these courses and studies uh, give me a good point from which to launch myself and you into the discussions that I want to have. But as I said, this is a process. And I am a white, middle-aged, cis woman who grew up in the suburbs of Fort Worth. So while my adult life has been weird and unpredictable and has provided me with many hard-won lessons and I did earn all of the crow's feet that I have... Uh, My experience only goes so far. So together, I hope that we can all learn a little bit more. Um, And one final, final note. uh, There are massive spoilers dead ahead. So if you don't want to know everything about these three books, please turn back now. Um, Now, with all of that in mind, let's talk. Okay, so Michael Moorcock's A Nomad of the Time Stream series is comprised of three books. The Warlord of the Air which was released in 1971 and takes place in an alternate Earth in the 1970s. The Land Leviathan, which was released in 1974, and it concerns an alternate Earth in 1904. And The Steel Czar, which was released in 1981 and takes place on yet another Earth in 1941. Um, There is a lot of information packed into these three books. They're very, very short. I mean, the first one, uh, Warlord of the Air, was only about 190 pages. Very short. A lot of stuff going on. So... The novel is told to Michael Moorcock, the grandfather, um, the author's grandfather, in 1903. Um, Mr. Grandfather Moorcock is at a place called Roe Island. Uh, It's a very remote little island. He's taking a holiday. And while he's there, a battered, rumpled, confused, obviously opium-addicted ex-soldier who had stowed away on a boat stumbles off that boat onto Roe Island Uh, He's confused, he's disoriented, he doesn't know what's happening, or, you know, something is very, very wrong with this man, this Oswald Bastable that Moorcock comes in contact with. There's a guilt, there's damage, Uh, he has seen many things. So, um, Moorcock is moved, he wants to help him, he helps, tries to clean him up, gets him some food in him. Um, and in the process of all this, he tries to learn Bastable's story, and so finally Bastable agrees to tell him. And what he begins to tell him is that he was a straight-laced, buttoned-up, unextraordinary British soldier uh, stationed in Northeast India in about 1902. And he was sent to put down um, a bandit king named Sharon Kong, who worked out of a place called Tekubanga. Uh, the Temple of the Future Buddha, high in the mountains. And so Bastable takes his contingent of soldiers, trials to um, confront Shrong Kong, and Kong actually comes down from the temple, comes down the mountain, uh, meets with Bastable, offers to host Bastable and a select few of his men um, for a meal and negotiations. They all go back to the temple, and while they're in the temple, it becomes clear that they've been drugged, uh, they've been given something, and events take off very quickly from there, uh, and uh, there's a lot going on, and Bastable eventually finds himself alone, incoherent, and lost in the lower levels of the temple. Um, he can't find his men, he doesn't know what's happening, and the temple is coming down around him. He is knocked unconscious. When he wakes up and he gets out of there, finally, he doesn't know what's going on yet, but for some reason his clothing is rotted away. Um, Once he gets out of the temple, the entire temple complex is shattered and looks like it has been that way for a long, long time. It's destroyed. There's, 
you know, a weed-choked courtyard. And what's worse is that the bridge to get from the road onto the complex is gone. Bastable is trapped. He's stuck. Um, he can't get down. And then he sees an airship, of all things, coming his way. The Royal Indian Air Service airship that patrols the temple complex. They pick him up. He's a little befuddled by that. And then finds out that it's 1973, which makes it even worse. Um, but it's not a 1973 that, that we would know, obviously, airships. Uh, it's very, very different. And in this world, um, World War I never happened. World War II never happened. There was no Hiroshima, um, no Russian Revolution. The colonial powers are still ascendant. They're still everywhere. Uh, India is still a British territory that Winston Churchill had been a viceroy of in this future. Um, that was Churchill's destiny in this world. So Bastable is trying to figure out what's happening. Um, he's amazed and he's marveling at all of these wonderful things, at the cleanliness, at the peace. Uh, it's a utopia. Everything is wonderful. The world is held between the powers of um, England, America, Russia, and Japan. They are the ascendant powers. They control everything. Um, so Bastable plays the amnesia angle. Uh, he claims that he doesn't know what happened to him, how he doesn't know how he got on the temple, he doesn't know what happened. Um, it's easier than trying to explain the actual truth because Bastable still doesn't understand what happened to him. But he goes along with it. It's obviously nothing he can do, and he's in this great, wonderful future, so he just rolls with it. Um, he actually, because he was a military man, he's comfortable with that role, and so he becomes employed in the, um, the air police, uh, in the military service, on the Lockative. He loves the airship. He loves working on it. He is very, very happy um, until he has an issue with a passenger on the way to Australia named Ronald Reagan. Uh, yes, Ronald Reagan. There are a lot of famous people in these books. Uh, you have to kind of... Some of them, you can't really tell if it's them. Like, uh, I think it's Lieutenant Michael Jagger. Yeah, it's Mick Jagger. Um, so Ronald Reagan is an asshole. He, uh... This this future, he he didn't become a governor or an actor or any of that. He was a rough rider, one of the last rough riders, and uh, he is a scout master for the young rough riders. Um, and he's got a little pole that he carries with a little flag on it, and his little flare gun that he won't be parted from. And he's also a racist dick bag. Um, he comes unhinged when he sees a group of East Indian civil engineers. Uh, having dinner in the dining room because he doesn't want his boys being near those, and I'm not going to say it, we know the word, it's not nice, it is used against many, many people, we're not going to say it, um, but like I said, Ronald Reagan, he's a dick, so. Bastable controls himself at that point, uh, tries to ameliorate the situation, but eventually a tropical storm um, will come up and... Ronald Reagan will lose his shit again, and where all this ends up is Bastable beating the brakes off of Ronald Reagan and being asked to resign from the air service. Um, at that point, he is offered a job by a man named Captain Joseph Korsnowski, who is also a notable figure. Um, I'm not going to tell you who he is yet, but suffice to say... Uh, he does have some experience with the colonialism and racism and imperialism uh, side of events. So I'll tell you who he is later because he comes up in all of the books. Um, 
if you know who you may know who he is I didn't at first I didn't I finally looked him up after I'd read the book a few times and wasn't really surprised when I found out who he was but uh so Korznowski takes on Bastable and Bastable joins the crew of the airship rover and he's quite happy um, he's still very upset about uh, anarchists that have been attacking different places, different colonial holdings. He doesn't understand why anyone would attack uh, this wonderful utopia. He doesn't get it. Um, and then the ship takes on, the airship rover takes on some passengers. Uh, Una Person, Mrs. Una Person, who is Korsnowski's daughter, or put it forward as his daughter, and uh, Count Rudolf von Beck. Very dashing very aristocratic, and very much an anarchist, which Bastable finds out when he sees Von Beck's picture in the paper uh, in an article about a recent um, assassination attempt. So, Bastable decides to single-handedly commandeer the ship (laughs) and turn it over to the British Army. Um, This does not go well for him, of course. Uh, There's no way it would have. And Bastable is... uh, confined to his quarters while they try to figure out what the hell to do with him. And while he is confined to quarters, he is, or the ship itself, is actually taken over by someone else. Uh, General O.T. Shaw, the titular warlord of the air, a half Chinese, half British um, brigand pirate warlord, um, idealist, freedom fighter, whatever you want to call him, um, O.T. Shaw is the anglicized version of his name. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the Chinese version. That would be insulting. Um, so Shaw commandeers the ship, and Korzenowski was injured in the uh, takeover. So Bastable is ordered to fly the ship and its occupants back to O.T. Shaw's Valley of the Morning, uh, his democratic dawn city. Uh, it's a lovely place, which really surprises Bastable. I think he expected you know, the merry men in the woods cut thing. But this is, it's beautiful. It's democratic. It's clean. Um, and they come clattering in in their noisy airship. And Bastable is roomed with Von Beck. Um, and he starts to learn a few things. He comes into, or he meets um, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. Um, which we would know as Vladimir Lenin. But in that world, Lenin never led a revolution. He makes the comment that there must have been a point, sometime, some point, when it could have happened, but he missed it. And now he's an old man uh, who just gives advice and everybody kind of overlooks and treats him like the senile old uncle. Uh, But Bastable is made aware of atrocities that he didn't really see before. Shaw sets him down in front of a film strip of horrible things that have happened, uh, Chinese farmers that are being that are be, that are being beheaded by Japanese soldiers for not producing enough rice, or um, masses masses of uh, Indians who were executed for marching to Delhi in mass without passes. Um, just terrible, awful things. Uh, the, the atrocities committed by the Russians, by the British, by the English, or I'm sorry, by the Americans. Uh, everyone. It's it's not a utopia for everyone. As Bastable says, it is only a utopia for some. So eventually, Bastable changes his mind. He realizes what's happening. Uh, and he goes full bore, balls to the wall, gung-ho. He wants to help. and he, But he's not really allowed to join the fight. Shaw's holding him back. Bastable doesn't understand why. And then it becomes apparent when they all pile onto an airship... 
with the secret project that Shaw has been working on for a very long time, which turns out to be an atomic bomb. It's the A-bomb. And they are headed toward Hiroshima in the airship. Bastable is piling it, piloting the airship into Hiroshima. Yeah, we thought it escaped. We thought it never got bombed. It just took another 50 years for it to happen. So I'm probably off count on that, 30 years maybe. So eventually it does happen. Bastable flies the ship in. They're all there. Uh, Uniperson, Von Beck, Shaw, they're all on board this airship. They're watching as the bomb bay opens, the bomb goes down. The concussive blast wave comes back up to the airship. And as Bastable is being blown into white hot unconsciousness, and the last thing he thinks is, I wish the damn airship had never been invented. And that's it. Uh, apparently, he wakes up in floating in the sea. He's burned. He is taken to a hospital uh, by some fishermen, taken to a hospital in Hiroshima, which has not been destroyed. It is still very much there, still very much okay. And it's 1902. Uh, he's confused. He's distraught. Uh, he also feels that he's not in his world. He's back in 1902. He's back in a quote-unquote normal world. But he still thinks that it's not his. He still feel still feels like something's wrong. Like maybe he's in just one over or one sideways from what it should be. Um, and so he goes back, tries to go back to Dawn City. But what he wants to find isn't there. The Valley of the Morning. It's not the way it was. And so he starts wandering. He wanders the world, uh, the wandering soldier, bereft, opium addicted. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He ends up at Roe Island. He tells a story to Moorcock. And once his story's done, it's almost like Moorcock turns his back and Bastable's just gone again. Um, Moorcock doesn't see him anymore. He's got this story. He doesn't have Bastable. He goes back to... Moorcock goes back to England. Uh, he tries for years to get Bastable's story published, but it's just too unbelievable. Nobody will publish it. Um, he puts it away. He tries again every once in a while. And finally, uh, 1910, 1909, 1910, he decides he is going to um, publish it himself. He is going to get it published himself. Um, or he's going to, I'm sorry, not published. He's going to find Bastable himself, rather. He is going to go to China. He is going to find Bastable, or at least figure out if he can't find Bastable, figure out where he went and what happened to him. And that is where the story ends. So, and then we go to the Land Leviathan. Uh, the first portion of the Land Leviathan is largely concerned with Grandfather Moorcock's uh, preparations to go to China and the things that he experiences um, from the people that he knows around him in, in London uh, because they all think he's crazy and they're tired of hearing about this book. So he decides he's going to go find Bastable himself. He's going to prove that it's true. He's going to go find him. He's going to see what the hell happened to him. So he packs up. He gets ready. And he goes. He goes to China. He finds a guide. Makes his way across China. Uh, in the process, his guide ends up getting killed. And Moorcock is rec uh, rescued by the lovely Mrs. Person. Herself dressed as a, a warlord, a uh, brigand, a Chinese brigand. She rescues him in all of her lovely, stoic, you know, icy British glory. Um, just to explain 
Mrs. Person. Uh, whenever I read about her, I always picture her as looking um, like Lady Mary Crawley from Downton Abbey. Uh, Michelle Dockery's character. She's just the, the cheekbones, the hair. That's very much what she reminds me of. So that is Mrs. Person. She And Mrs. Person actually will pop up in other Michael Moorcock novels, uh, not just this. She truly is just traveling the time streams. Um, so she rescues Moorcock. She takes him where he wants to go, uh, the Valley of the Morning. And obviously it's not what it was or what it will be. It was probably the better way to say it. Um, it's not what anyone is looking for. It's not what Moorcock is looking for. It wouldn't be what Bastable was looking for. And Mrs. Person is very cryptic and very enigmatic about where Bastable is and about who she is and what she's done. And when they have dinner that evening, she's very vague. Um, he says that it's almost as if she's uh, on opium herself. She's very trance-like. Uh, she doesn't really tell him anything except that Bastable is a nomad, that, that they're all nomads of the time streams. Uh, eventually, they go their separate ways to go to bed. When Moorcock wakes up, Mrs. Person is gone. All the people that were with her are gone. Everyone has cleared out. Some of their personal effects are still there, but they are gone. The only thing that's left is a horse and a manuscript that had been left by Bastable. There's no real explanation about the manuscript. It's just there because Bastable knew that Moorcock would eventually come looking for him. He knew he wouldn't be able to resist, that he would come try to find him. So, Bastable's manuscript tells the story of what happened to him after he left uh, Roe Island, after he wandered off and left Roe Island. Um, basically, Bastable goes back to Tekubanga. He's going to see if he can try to get back to what he believes is his real world. He finds a cave that actually that will lead him into the temple complex without need of the bridge. Uh, he's in there for a while. He comes back out. Something's changed. And what's changed is that he has wandered out into a post-apocalyptic world uh, sometime shortly after the turn of the 20th century. That's in 1904, 1906, somewhere around there. Um, a Chilean inventor, Irish Chilean inventor named Manuel O'Bean, had invented things that had brought great prosperity to the world. It ended famine, ended poverty. Everyone was full. Everyone was happy. And much like that scene in The Matrix where Agent Smith is telling Morpheus about the early iterations of The Matrix, which were a utopia, but people kept fighting the construct. They kept fighting the programming because they needed the conflict. They needed the fighting. They needed the wars. That's basically what happened. Everyone was fed. Everyone was happy. Everyone was prosperous. People no longer needed to fight to survive. And so their brains turn to other things, like fighting for power. So everyone goes to war. The whole world. This is where the world war is. It's right here. Um, Western Europe, United States, devastated by these technologies. Uh, it's just, it's terrible. Southern England it is, has been reduced to cannibalism. Um, roving bands of savages, um, and on top of all of this horrible, horrible terminus stew is uh, the biological agents that were also used in this horrible war. These are, uh, these have left, no one is infected anymore, uh, but things like devil's fungus are still around, and it's really disgusting, and I'm not going to describe devil's fungus because it kind of makes me gag just thinking about it. Uh, it's gross. If you want to know about it, read Land Leviathan. Moorcock will tell you all about it. It's really disgusting. So, southern England is 
a Mad Max wasteland. It's terrible. Um, and Bastable, what happens with Bastable, he, when he comes out um, of the cave and he goes to an out, finds a British outpost and all he finds all of this out, but he doesn't care. He wants to go back to England. He's a son of England. He wants to go back to England, even though everyone keeps telling him, don't go to England. He doesn't care. He finds a ship, an Arabian ship, that can take him where he needs to go to get back to England, but the ship is attacked by pirates because, of course, Bastable survives. Uh, he is then picked up by the same ship that attacked, and that ship is captained by Joseph Korsnowski, a much younger version. Can't be Una's father. Um, so Korsnowski also says, you don't want to go back. You don't want to go back. Dude, don't go back. He doesn't care. He wants to go back. Uh, Korsnowski drops him off but tells him that he winters, he refuels in uh, one of the islands off, I think it's the Isle of Skye. Um, and so if Bastable changes his mind and wants to join Korsnowski, that's where he can find him. Uh, at some point he'll be able to find him there. Bastable starts to work his way into the interior. Um, he's trying to get to London. And that's when he, he finally ends up stalled in a place called East Grinstead. Uh, it's terrible. It's a place that he knew as a child, and it was lovely when he was a child. It's not lovely now, and it's ruled by Major John, the King of East Grinstead, um, who currently are holding the lovely Mrs. Person as a prisoner. Bastable seizes. He recognizes her immediately. Um, he's not much he can do at this point because it's just him. There is no one else with him, and there are a lot of really hungry <laughs> shopkeepers and merchants and former soldiers and bankers. It's just, it's, it's horrible. But, um, he finally is able to take a shot, takes out Major John, the King of East Grinstead. He gets Una person freed, gets her out of there. She has her own, uh, Obin digging machine. And so they're able to, to clear out. Uh, she takes him as far as she can, um, in England, but she can only take him so far. She, she needs the fuel to get herself back to where she needs to be. Uh, and at this point, Bastable decides that he is going to take Korsnowski up on his offer. So they separate. He heads north to go find Korsnowski and join up with him on the Lola Montez. And we lose sight of Mrs. Person for a little while. Now, Bastable and Korsnowski, they raid and pirate their way through the waters for about a year. Um, but it's, it's, it's running out. There's not much to attack anymore unless they start attacking much smaller ships. And Korsnowski doesn't want to do that. Uh, so they start talking about joining the Navy of the one of the only prosperous places left in the world in South Africa. Uh, it's been renamed to Bantistan, and it is ruled by President Gandhi. Um, it's never known apartheid. It's beautiful. Uh, it's peaceful. It's prosperous. Everyone is fed, and they kept themselves out of all the conflict, all of the wars, all of the fighting that was happening. So they have stayed rich. They have stayed ahead of the curve technologically. And they they are the place to be. Um, and they need people. They want it. They, they are trying to build up their navy. Uh, they want to... The, the goal is to restore um, Europe and to restore England back to civilization. And bring it back to order. Um, so they go to, to Bantistan. They join Gandhi's navy. Uh, while they're there, it's also made clear to them, um, right before someone else arrives, and we'll talk about him in just a minute, but it's made clear to Korsnowski and Bastable by Gandhi that in true Gandhi fashion, that navy that is being built up is not there to defend Bantistan. 
it is not there to fight. If the city is attacked, the purpose of the Navy is to evacuate as many citizens from the city as possible, as quickly as possible, and get them the hell out of there and to somewhere safe. Gandhi won't fight. Gandhi doesn't want to fight. And we wouldn't expect him to. He was a man of peace. And so rather than try to defend the city and see civilians killed in the process, he would rather put their efforts towards getting everybody the hell out of there. Now, knowing this, if, if this information got into the wrong hands, it would be dangerous for the city. The city lacks the ability to truly defend themselves. Um, so this is, big, this is a big secret for Bassable to carry, uh, and he feels very honored by it. Um, so this is leading up to a visit by the Black Attila, General Cicero Hood, who is leading uh, his own army. It's an African army, uh, the Ashanti Empire. Um, Cicero Hood is the son. He's not directly African himself. Uh, he is the son of slaves from Arkansas uh, in a very different America. But Hood is taking it back um, and this is terrifying, terrifying to the white people. This is all of the white fears of Nat Turner and the slave revolt and the uprisings, and the black man is finally going to rise up, and we are all going to be done for. Um, that is what Hood represents, and yes, while some of this is his plan, he is not as actually quite as brutal as the stories say. Uh, he lets the stories carry things for him. Um, he actually does have a heart. He does have kindnesses, but he does plan to not enslave the white race, but put them in their place. Um, put his own people ascendant. And for Bastable, this is very, very, very difficult to understand. Bastable is repulsed by Hood uh, and, <laughs> and Hood's companion. When everyone starts whispering as Hood shows up in Magistan and he has a white lady companion, can you guess who that is? Yes, it's Miss Person. Mrs. Person is Hood's right hand, because um, she's always there. She shows up everywhere. The woman is, she's a superhero. She's everywhere. So, Hood uh, is conquering Europe, um, trying to conquer the United States. And the land Leviathan itself is this moving ziggurat of destruction, um, which will help him immeasurably in his war. Um, but... Ba uh, Hood likes Bastable. He actually quite likes him. Um, Bastable is sassy in that polite British way. He doesn't like Hood, but Hood respects him. And so when Hood leaves and he takes uh, some people with him, um, he requests Bastable, a kind of an exchange program. Gandhi puts this to Bastable, you don't have to do this. Bastable's like, no, I'll do it. I respect you, I'll do it. But he doesn't want to. He's not happy being with Hood. Uh, he doesn't like that Hood's black forces are not nice to him. <laughs> they are openly derogatory and bigoted and discriminatory towards him, and he does not like this. He does not appreciate it. He doesn't think it's fair. Um, and also, he's still appalled by Hood and what Hood wants to do. So they get to finally get to America. Hood's going to take it over. He's going to, you know, like I said, he's going to take it all back. Um, there's no other way to put it. That's what he's doing. Um... And Bastable, um, once they get there, we'll run across a whole bunch of famous people again. Um, Herbert Hoover is a gangster in New York. Um, Joe Kennedy is there, and he's a horrible, horrible person. He's a model lord kind of guy. Um, and 
they're obviously horribly, horribly racist. This is what uh, Hood is coming in to overcome and destroy. And Bastable uh, is concerned about the white genocide that is about to take place. So he manages to escape from Hood's forces in America. He makes his way to Kennedy, to Washington, and to tell the white people what's coming for them. But when Bastable gets there... Uh, he sees that, that Washington is being is being shored up. There's there's bullocks. There's there's slaves everywhere. Um, there's bulwarks all around the city and cages on them. He doesn't know what the cages are for yet. Uh, but then he sees some horrific atrocities being committed by the KKK or not the but the hooded the white hooded uh, against some slaves. And in true bastable fashion, he changes his mind again. He's awoke. He he's woke once again. And starts fighting for the slaves, goes into hiding with them, and that's when he finds out that the cages, or what the cages are for. Um, this is the the big weapon against Hood, the big white uh, army's weapon against Hood, is that they're going to pack these these cages on the bulwarks with with slaves. So if Hood attacks the walls, he will be killing his own people in mass, women, men, children. They're all going to be crammed into these cages up on the walls. If the bombs come, it's going to kill everyone. Um, Bastable comes back to Hood. He tells him what's going on. Everybody works it out. And uh, he he's with Hood for some time. So he stays with Hood, like I said, some time, about a year. Uh, but he can't handle <laughs> not being liked because he's white. Uh, even though some of Hood's men tell him he's not so bad for a white guy, it's still hard for him to reconcile that because he grew up white, British, ascendant. This is hard for him. Um, so he and he spends a lot of time with Mrs. Person during all this because she's still there. But and he makes trips back to uh, to Bantistan. He helps to negotiate the peace uh, with the Australasian Japanese, who are um, also one of the world powers at this point, um, trying to bring the world back to a sane level of chaos. Um, and that's really how the book ends he says that he's you know in the manuscript he says one day he may try to go back again to Tekubanga and go back into the passage and see where he ends up from there um or maybe he'll just show up on Warcock's doorstep one day he doesn't know but that's the end of the book and he doesn't show up uh, but Moorcock does um try to get this published again uh, Una person is just gone she's vanished he doesn't see her anymore uh, it takes Moorcock some time to get out of China, about a month. Uh, he makes his way back. He gets back to England, and that's really it from there. Um, Moorcock, the author, leaves another note about the use of Uniperson in later books, and that's it for that book. We don't really know where Bastable went again or what happened, but we'll find out in just a minute. Now, in the third book, The Steels Are... Uh, things are a little bit different. Uh, it's not opened with a found manuscript or you know anything like that. It's not opened with Moorcock telling the story. It's Bastable telling his own story straight to the reader. Uh, and Bastable is floating in the ocean. Um, and we're eventually told the story of why he's floating in the ocean. Uh, this is, a, again, a different world. It's a world where the Russian Revolution, again, did not happen. But also that the Confederates won the war, the Civil War in the United States. But... Slavery is still abolished. Everybody's happy. Um, the country just works, and it's good. Uh, but in this one, Japan begins to wage war. There's no real World War One, 
but Japan begins waging war against Russia and uh, Britain in 1941. And that's where Bastable is. He sees the firebombing of Singapore by Japanese airships. Um, he's trying to flee the city, and he ends up on a remote island called Rishiri Island. Uh, it was a former outpost of a mining firm, and what you start to realize while you're there, while you're, you're reading this, is that it's Roe Island from the first book. Um, the hotel is the same. Olmeyer's hotel is the same. Everything is the same, but it's not the same. So he basically ends up on the same island, but what I thought was interesting and what confused me a little bit is that he doesn't really have any recognition of the island, or he doesn't state it. But I think it's the same island. That was the impression that I got. But the island is uh, attacked. The rest of the British Empire is falling apart. Um, so the natives begin to rise up. They're going to kick the British out of their off their island. Um, and then the Japanese come in onto the island. They take everybody. Um, and then it's hard to explain because so much happens and it's really confusing, but Bastable ends up in Russia um, where the Cossacks are revolting against a democratic government. And and I can't pronounce the name, but it's Stalin. Um, I believe it's Stalin's original name. He was a, a Georgian and a priest. It was Stalin's original name, uh, Jugash. It's, I'm not going to try to say that because I don't speak Russian. But he is in control of the Cossack armies, and he uses the name the Steel Czar. Um, he wears a mask, much like the man in the Iron Mask, and there's something going on under there, but we're never really told what it is. Um, but the Steel Czar, Stalin, in this, he is just as bad as he was in real life. Um, he's using the Cossacks, and he says that he wants to liberate and he wants to emancipate, but that's not what he wants to do. He just wants to become the ruler of the world. Uh, so... Bastable ends up on an airship once again with Korzhnevsky. Um And they are fighting for the Steel Czar because they have to. Um, they don't really want to. They're just trying to keep themselves alive. Um, and then he <laughs> has to drop the atomic bomb once again. Uh, this time on Machno. Uh, Nestor Machno, the anarchist, and the Black Flag Army. Um, but what happens is that, unlike the last time, one of the characters from the first book, uh, Cornelius Dempsey, takes, he was in the first book, he's the one that actually came to Bastable about the original job with Korzenowski on the original airship, the rover, in the first book. Dempsey is in this one as well. He was with Bastable on the island. He's a drunkard. He's damaged. Again, there's no real a recognition of him from the first book. Some of this, these things are just kind of overlooked. Uh, like, Bastable just doesn't... He doesn't feel like saying anything, or he just, just, he just doesn't for whatever reason. Uh, so it took me a while also to realize who Dempsey was. I had to go back and look through. Um, but they're all on the ship, and Dempsey, in this, in this universe, this timeline that Bastable is in with the Steel Czar, Dempsey had dropped a bomb on Hiroshima in another timeline. <laughs> so they're all damaged. They're all beat up. Uh, Von Beck shows up at one point, but he's ghostly and albino and seems to be moving things behind the scenes. And this is also where we find out about the League of Temporal Adventurers that Uniperson is part of and wants to bring Bastable into. Um, so eventually 
Bastable, like I said, this book is really short. Um, it just seems to be tying threads together. Bastable turns, they, they managed to turn it around, and the bomb is used to take out uh, Stalin, the Steel Czar, and Machina lives. Um, the Steel Czar's forces are taken out, and Bastable is recruited into the League of Temporal Adventurers. Um, there is a mention towards the end about him coming together with Mrs. Person. I think it can be inferred that perhaps they had a, a, a night together, but it's never really, never really elucidated that way and that is really all that can be said about I mean it's a good book uh it definitely should be read it is important to kind of wrap up and tie up the loose ends of Bastable's life but it is quick and that's really all it is is just another look at uh in this one instead of the imperialism and racism of the first few books this one is about uh socialism and anarchism and how there there can be benefits to them um, and they, can, you know, what they can be used to do to change the world. So this book is important. Uh, it's just like I said, it's really short. It's kind of hard to sum up because it's all, it's all summary. So what we find out at the very end is that this is a manuscript as well that he manages to get to um, Moorcock, the author, the grandson. Uh, yeah, this is delivered directly to Michael Moorcock, our author. Uh, Bastable is still out there moving through the time streams. Um, and mentions that one day, uh, you know, he might even meet him. Uh, and that's what we have. That's the story of Oswald Bastable in three very odd, very wonderful little books that kicked off steampunk. Um, and when we come back after a quick musical morale booster, uh, we'll talk about some of the themes, um, that are so important in these books and why they're still important today and they still need to be discussed. So enjoy, and we will be back in just a few. When will I get back home? I'm tired of all this talking. Bought in the plane, catching the train.
Welcome back, welcome back, my literary listeners. I hope you enjoyed that. That was An Idiot Abroad by Greg Atkinson. Uh, that is from the freemusicarchive.org. If you would like to hear other music of the steampunk variety, steampunk adjacent, in the neighborhood of steampunk, I would recommend the Clockwork Cabaret podcast. It comes out every Friday by Emmett Davenport and Lady Adderkopf. They play some good music, and the ladies know what they're doing. They've been around for a while now, so I cannot recommend them enough. Um, Give them a shot, Clockwork Cabaret Podcast, and I believe the website is clockworkcabaret.com. Now, let's get back to our discussion about Oswald Festival. And full disclosure, I know much, much more about Warlord of the Air than I do about uh, the other two, and I know more about Land Leviathan than I do about Steel Czar. Um, I've read Warlord many times. Uh, Red Lane Leviathan quite a few times. Steels are, not so much. And Warlord, uh, the book that inspired a podcast, um, I wrote a paper about it, uh, which I'm actually working to get published, and it's a paper that I presented at a conference. Um, I know I've mentioned that before. I talk about it all the time because I'm very proud of it. Um, But I will be drawing from that, and that's uh, where where a lot of this information is going to come from. And it's what I, like I said, I I know Warlord, um, I know that, I think I know the book almost backwards and forwards at this point. So, at the time that Michael Moorcock wrote Warlord of the Air in the 70s, uh, Vietnam was in full sway, uh, which had been uh, colonized at various points by various countries, you know, it had been occupied by Japan, it had been colonized by France. Um, so there was, there was the colonialism and the paternalism and the imperialism right there on the news every night. Uh, we were, you know, running through the Cold War at that point. We were right in the, the height of the Cold War. And somewhere after World War II, science fiction had shifted and become... The imperialistic tone had shifted to science fiction. It was, you know, colonies on the moon and, you know, occupying Mars and everything had become the streamlined science fiction, the sleek, the robotic, um, what we're all familiar with. Uh, it had changed. We didn't see the airships and, you know, the Nautilus and things like that from Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. We didn't really see that much after World War II. So when Michael Moorcock shows up in the 70s with Oswald Bastable and airships, uh, and all these alternative futures, um, it was very different. And one thing that um, stands out most to me, one of the things that stands out about Moorcock's story is the fact that Oswald Bastable goes into the future and sees what could happen, a future, whereas a lot of time travel is concerned with going back to try to fix something that's going to become broken and then just making it even worse than it was. Uh, and that's not what happens. Bastable is thrown forward into several different timelines, several different versions of what could be. Uh, and he sees the bad thing that's going to happen. So you know, can you go back and fix it? Can you go back and change it? Um, and for Bastable, going forward into this future, seeing this this civilized world, especially in the first book, this civilized, beautiful utopia, uh, it's, it's lovely, it's wonderful. And... It's only after traveling the world <laughs> with Von Beck and the anarchists that he starts to see how damaging uh, colonialism is, how damaging these policies have been and what they've done. He's, he's forced to look outside of his white British soldier viewpoint to see what is being done to the people that should, you know, that, that paternalism 
has been taken care of and not really been taken care of. Um, and what Bastable learns is that this, this anarchy, this revolution, uh, these things are necessary. And it surprises him. It catches him off guard uh, when he suddenly becomes gung-ho to fight for O.T. Shaw. Um, he doesn't know where this is coming from. Not really. He just he knows that he needs to do something because Bastable is nothing else an honorable man. And when he is awakened, awoke, when he's when he comes to the realization of the horrors that are taking place around him that he never really saw, he wants to do something about it. But it's the making him see part that is important. He needs to see what's happening. He needs to see that he is privileged, that he has led a privileged life, even if he was a soldier. His life has been privileged by being a white British soldier, white male British soldier. Um, and so Bastable has to face this world, this paternalistic treatment of colonies, uh, what's been done, and what becomes clear um, in this world, this the, the world of Warlord, where there is no post-colonial society because everything is still a colony of America or England or Russia or Japan. They're all still colonies. Um, so the technology that they, that they use that we don't have has taken over the globe. Um, but these technologies, they were very common in science fiction, like we said, before World War II. Um, they only kind of went to the background when the space race took off. And so Moorcock using these, just the, the sheer audacity of using this old science fiction technology is shocking enough in that it, it it's going to, you know, break us out of the, the tried and true science fiction that everyone's gotten used to uh, throughout the, the mid uh, 20th century. It's going to break that and say, hey, look, here's something a little different. And so you're going to pay a little bit more attention, or you would at the time. Um, this has been described by Alan Lovegreen as a kind of a retro aero futurism, uh, the throwback to this old tech. And it's just, it's a new way to look at the cities of the world, and at that time, things were growing at a very rapid pace, and not only was it infect, infecting, <laughs> was it affecting the indigenous people, uh, the people that were supposed to be where they were and were getting kicked out of where they were, but it was also having a massive effect on the environment, um, which, you know, we see now, many years later, what these things are doing, um, the environment was being affected by these technologies. So when Bastable is abducted by General Shaw and he's taken to the Valley of the Morning, um, it's a paradise. It's beautiful. It's ecological. It's self-sustaining. Um, everyone gets along. Everyone does their job for the good of the community. And Bastable feels out of place with the airship clanking into this beautiful valley um, that they've disrupted this paradise with their technology. So... What is ironic, then, is that uh, Moorcock does take steps to demonstrate that history can sometimes be delayed, maybe, but not avoided, by taking that technology, uh, these, these wonderful machines and inventions, and showing that out of these wonderful things can come things like the atomic bomb, um, and then drops it on Hiroshima, which blasts Bastable out of where he was, and... Again, Bastable has another moment of clarity when he feels, you know, I wish the Dan Bear ship had never been invented. Um, so we see, again, technology run amok, uh, destroying indigenous people, destroying lives, destroying cities and worlds. And, you know, he gets blasted out of the way. And 
for Warlord, um, it's very clear in Warlord that Bastable's had this change of heart. But what strikes me so much uh, with all of the books together, and we see this again in the second book in The Land Leviathan, it's a process for Bastable. He's brought, you know, this is brought to life for him in the first book, this colonialism is bad idea. Uh, it's made very clear to him what has happened, what has been done, what, you know, Britain and America and all these countries have done to the places that they've colonized. But with the land leviathan, these, all of these horrible things that have happened, but he still holds out hope that his home country of Britain, you know, his home country of England is okay, and it's not. So he goes to join the Bantistan Navy. He goes to spend time with Gandhi, and when faced with the you know the prospect of meeting General Cicero Hood, this horrible horrible man who was brutalizing white people, once again Bastable has to face his ingrained bigotry, his ingrained prejudices and fears of this time not an uprising by the you know the East Indians that have been colonized, but by African slaves by uh, well, what we would call now African Americans in America, um, by people of dark skin who have been enslaved and brutalized for hundreds and hundreds of years, and Bastable in his white buttoned up, he may have been traveling to different places, but at heart I think he is still that Edwardian man, and that fear of the uprising and not so much for Bastable, being that he is British, but especially in America, this is something that we've covered in a lot of my history classes, that fear of the black man, that fear of the angry black man rising up and coming for the white oppressors and brutalizing and murdering and killing everyone. Um, and even just the idea with Una Person traveling with Cicero Hood, there's the idea of the white woman attached to the black man, you know, the protect, we, we must protect our women. Uh, it's an idea that just, I hate that. I, it, this is a phrase that still comes up today. If we all can remember during the presidential election and they build the wall and the bad hombres and they come here and they rape our women, our women. With our women in quotes, we understand that our women means the white women. Nobody seems to understand that the white women don't need your protection. We are okay. Uh, we can handle it. And But it, it comes up over and over and over again. Protect the white women from the brown men. And it's not about protection. It's about white men losing control of everything. Of the women, of their slaves, of their money, of their land, of their privilege... And that is really, that is exemplified with Cicero Hood and his power and his force and his audacity in going to Africa and creating the Ashanti Empire and having these soldiers around him, these strong soldiers who aren't taking any shit and are not shy about discriminating against Bastable and the other, other white people for being white. Uh, they've flipped it around. They, they've taken it. They've flipped the script. And white people don't like it. They do not like it. They don't understand it. They don't feel that this is the, the right social order. And even towards the end of the book, Bastable still has an issue 
with being treated this way. Uh, he feels for the plight of the slaves in America. He wants to help them once he realizes what's really happening and how they're actually being treated, but he still doesn't like the way he's treated. Um, he wants to leave because he doesn't like it. He, he, doesn't, he wants to be accepted, and they are not truly accepting him, and that is hard for him, and it should be hard. Um, we all need to take a look at that and, and, and understand that and try to you know, see what would happen if the tables are turned and the tables are sometimes turned and we don't like being discriminated against and we need to understand what that feels like because we do it to everybody else. Um, so where the first one was largely about the colonialism, uh, of East India and China. Um, and the second one focused very much, um, on American slavery and, uh, the, the black war leader, the black warlord coming in, um, you know, and, and asserting his rights. The Steel Czar was a little different. Um, it wasn't so much about... There was some issues with the natives on the island um, uprising up, but it wasn't covered as much. That was largely about socialism uh, and anarchism and what anarchism can do and why it's not a bad thing. And the reason that that's important is because Michael Moorcock himself professes to be an anarchist. Um... He believes in it, and uh, he's he's unapologetic about it. And actually, in the uh, the forward notes to Warlord, um, there's a note that was made in 1993 by Moorcock when the book was re-released at that time. And what he said was that paternalism and centralism, the bane of capitalist as well as socialist politics, are for me the permanent enemy of democracy. Um, he doesn't like, you know, he doesn't like... St- paternalism and centralism uh, he wants democracy but he believes that anarchy is the way to do it um rise up you know uh take control do what you need to do to bring the world to the place that it needs to be um and it's a message that's very important and something that we talked about in the intro that's that's where steampunk can come in um, we can use steampunk and we can use alternative history to talk about colonialism and globalization and what technology is doing. Um, we talk, Like I said, we talked about the intro, about these different things, uh, the effects that they can have. And one thing that is discussed, or that, that you don't see, the reason that I don't want to do the pulp science fiction or the, the pulp steampunk books, because they're very exciting, but they don't touch on these subjects. And I think that that's a bit of a disservice. Um, adventure is great, but... If you can use a genre like steampunk to talk about what the Edwardians did, (laughs) the Victorians and the Edwardians and Americans, and just from the moment they started, you know, we started pulling them out, the Dutch ships, the Portuguese ships, the British ships, the American ships, um, up to recent events uh, in America and in England and all over the world, we are not past these ideas, uh, the xenophobia, the, the, the fear of the other, the fear of the not white. We are not past that. We are a long way from not past that. Um, and so books like this, we can take them and we can, and we can look at the world that way. We can look back and see, you know, the world is very exciting, but we're also seeing what Bastable is going through, coming to these realizations. And, 
for people of color, Bastable's realizations are not going to be a shock. They're not going to be a surprise. It's, well, you know, what took you so fucking long? But for those of us who are not of color, for those of us who are white and were raised in the suburbs and, you know, are as, <laughs> as boring as can be, seeing things through someone who looks like us and coming to that realization, that is important. We need to see these things. We need to hear them. We need to know what we've done wrong. We need to understand why it's wrong. You know, and, and people say things like, I don't believe in white privilege. You really you need to believe in it. You need to understand. Even if you don't like the words, you call it advantage. Call it um, something else. But you need to understand that there is a certain point where we start, where the, where the white race has springboarded up to the top um, through sheer force of will and oppression and violence. And looking at it through Bastable's eyes and seeing, well, this is what I thought was right, but apparently it is not. This is very, very wrong. These people are suffering. They are being abused. They are being mistreated. Um, and this is all in the name of progress and civilization. And that that doesn't work. You can't forcefully civilize anyone. So using, you know, the alternate history genre... Um, it was just the way that Karen Hulkson described it is um, a variability of time, you know, the insignificant moments, and they foreground a, a constructedness of history and, and a role that narrative plays in the construction of history. So, um, Bastable brings us a different view, taken out of time, the man out of time, which we've all seen, but the man out of time thrust into the future. Um, and Moorcock is not subtle um, about the political overtones. There's overtones and there's subtext. It is all there. Um, and one thing that um, Mike Prashan brings up uh, in his dissertation, um, the steampunk aesthetic, was that Moorcock's use of an Asian warlord in Warlord of the Air um, was very likely, could have been, was directly influenced by the conflict raging in Vietnam uh, that was going on before and after the book was published. And like I said, you know, Moorcock has never been quiet about his political views, so it's there. It's not like he just accidentally slipped this in there. It is there. But it's not always overt, and so it, it sneaks in. And Prashan said, as you know, Prashan states that this is probably the most valuable aspect of Moorcock's work because it makes you look a little bit deeper. It makes you look, it, it tr triggers something in your brain. Um, so while it's adventurous and exciting, it's got bandits and you know, machine guns and airships, um, it's still showing you a view of what the world could have been, what it might have been, um, what maybe it will be. So examining it this way forces us to see that. I know I keep saying that over again, but we need to see it. We need to see that colonial mindset. We need to see what we've done to the world. We need to see what we've done to the people of this world. Um, now, at, at this point, I think I am starting to ramble, which is why I've, I've cut myself off. But I also, um, running up there, and we needed to talk about Captain Korsnowski, who kept running, or turning up over and over and over again in these books. Um, if you didn't look him up, if you didn't go Google him at some point to figure out who he is, Korsnowski is the, uh, the, the birth name of Joseph Conrad, who wrote Heart of Darkness, um, I'm not sure if they still read that in school nowadays, but those of us of my age and older, possibly slightly younger, we read Heart of Darkness in high school. Um, not a pleasant novel, 
And while there are issues with Conrad himself uh, in his portrayal of the interior and the Congolese, and uh, while he was attempting to describe the colonialism and racism, uh, he he may have made it a an accurate recounting of what was going on in the Congo Free State. Um, and we will actually discuss the Congo Free State more in a future episode with Nizi Shaw's Everfair. Uh, but for now, we'll stick with Korzynowski is Joseph Conrad, who wrote Heart of Darkness, uh, a novel about colonialism and racism in the Congo Free State on his trip up the river. Uh, it was a, it's a fictionalized account of what was supposed to what he was supposedly actually went through himself. Um, there are definite issues with the novel or with Conrad, but in the context of the Moorcock novels, um, Korzynowski slash Conrad, and it took me a while to see this. Um, something that kind of clicked for me recently as I was rereading these in preparation for this um, is that Korzynowski almost acts as a sort of psychopomp to Bastable. I think that's his importance in the novels is that not that Bastable's dead, he's not leading him through the or to the underworld, but he is leading Bastable. He is an important, necessary figure in that he is guiding Bastable through these hearts of darkness with, you know, into the Valley of the Morning and dropping the bomb in Warlord and taking him, not only delivering him into the hell of southern England in the land Leviathan, but picking him back up and taking him back out of it and then flying with him to, again, drop a bomb, to deliver a bomb in the Steel Czar. So Korzynowski uh, acts as a guide to, and like I said, this isn't always obvious, and Korzynowski, unlike the others, unlike Bastable and Una Person and Von Beck and Dempsey, Korzynowski does not seem to be aware of what's happening. He is not really, I don't believe, a nomad of the time streams because he is different in his incarnations. When Bastable meets him, he's very old. When Bastable meets, you know, in the, in the 70s, he's old. It's in the 70s, but the time is off. You know, when he meets him again, he's a young man. He couldn't be Una's father. So Conrad is there, like I said, as an unwitting guide, as an unwitting psychopomp, taking Bastable through these different layers of, you know, like Homer with Dante. Um, in the Inferno, leading him through. That, I believe, is what Korsnowski's role is. Um, and it's important because he does usher Bastable through these stages that he needs to go through to come to the realization of who he, is, who he is and what he has seen and what mankind is capable of doing to each other, um, whether it's for food or for power, or just because we have so much stuff and so much prosperity that we are so fucking bored that we are just going to attack each other because there's ne literally nothing else to do. Um, and Conrad, Conrad Korzynowski guides him through, takes him to all these different stages uh, of realization without realizing it himself necessarily. If he is aware, it's not made known to the readers. I don't believe he was ever self-aware. Like I said, he's the only one that continually shows up that is not aware. So that's Korzynowski. That's Joseph Conrad. Uh, like I said, Conrad and his issues are a whole other discussion. Maybe we'll have it some other time, but that's who he is. And this show has actually run on a lot further than I intended to, so 
Um, I know I haven't hit all my points. I haven't hit all my issues. There's no way that I could and still, you know, not talk your ear off. But I want to have more discussions. I want to talk with you more. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Tumblr. I'm on Pinterest. I'm on all of the webs. I have email. Um, I'm most active on Twitter, though. Um, but my email is up as well. Contact me. Come find me. Start a discussion on the Facebook page. Steampunk Dollhouse does have a Facebook page. Join the page. Start a discussion. Let's talk. Because there's more to talk about. I know I've missed things. I've probably said things inaccurately. I've probably said something wrong that's going to upset someone. And that's okay, because if you tell me about it, I can fix it. Um, all I ask is that we be civil, but I want to have a discussion with you guys. So that is my relatively brief and yet rambling take on Michael Moorcock and the Roots of Steampunk with uh, the Nomad of the Time Stream series, Warlord of the Air. Uh, Land Leviathan and Steel's are. I highly recommend you get all three. Uh, links are in the notes and on the website. And I believe that does just about cover this discussion for us. Thank you. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion matters and it has an impact on how many people can find us. I would also like to say a special thank you to Shelly Nay, Game Troll, Prince Vegeta 777, and DNO Ash for their recent reviews. We'd also like to say a very special thank you to Miss Josephine, who can shit talk her way through Skyrim like nobody's business. If you would like to contribute your vocal tones to our intro, we would really like that, and it's super easy. You just need the voice recorder on your smartphone and a can do attitude. Please email me at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com with the subject line intro offer, and I'll send you the script and instructions. And with that, we're done. We'll see you in two weeks for Doing It For Themselves, or Why the Capable Ladies of the Clockwork Century Don't Need Your Mansplaining, with a discussion of Sherry Priest's The Clockwork Century series. Steampunk Dollhouse is a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0 international license. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis. Additional assistance provided by Josephine Davis, who, much like Lydia, is sworn to carry my burdens. Our intro music is Baby I'm Not Your Lady by Singin' Sadie. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Being overrun by book burners and golf-playing demagogues? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at spdhpod. Want to help keep the library generators fueled? Visit our support page at spdhpod.com. Any contributions you can make will be amazing and sincerely appreciated and will enable us to begin making kick-ass Bunker Buster merchandise as soon as possible. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking out. Aries. Monopoly. Tofu.